1: Purchase necessary. Void where prohibited
3: by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Alien incidents known as the Battle of L.A. and Roswell may have led to the U.S. government creating a special and classified organization to investigate and control information about aliens. The alleged clandestine 12-member group is known simply as The Majestic 12. Washington DC, 1947. Top secret UFO investigation agency, The Majestic 12, has been created to combat an increasing alien threat. But who are these men?
4: There was a general feeling
5: that whatever UFOs were, strange, spooky, weird, odd, the subject of science fiction movies, somehow people on the inside knew exactly what they were
4: people inside the United States government.
3: After the PR fallout of the mishandled Roswell incident, it was obvious to many Air Force insiders that an elite hand-picked team needed to be created to control and monitor the increasing UFO phenomena 24-7. The man allegedly chosen to oversee Majestic 12 is James Forrestal, US Secretary of Defense. Forrestal is the man behind the scenes But who can be trusted to run Majestic operations on the ground? One name catches Forrestal's eye, Vannevar Bush. He is the first scientific advisor to the president and a key figure behind the Manhattan Project, codename for the world's first atomic bomb. Majestic 12's first priority is to limit the public's knowledge and exposure to UFOs. Run out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, experts believe Majestic 12's first official operation is codenamed Project Sign. Project Sign sends operatives into the field to deal with a rash of recent sightings with the purpose of clamping a tight lid down on UFO phenomena in America. June 24, 1947. Pilot Kenneth Arnold spots a series of discs flying in a strange formation at incredible speeds near Mount Rainier, Washington. Several witnesses corroborate the incident. The story appears in American and Canadian publications. From those stories, the term flying saucer is introduced to the public. The very publication of Kenneth Arnold's story sends shockwaves through Majestic 12. How did even this small amount of information get into the public domain. Though the press is kept in the dark, one thing is clear. The problem is escalating. Although America's nuclear development is still in its infancy, ufologists fear mankind's new experimental energy frontier may be part of the problem. Some experts speculate atomic testing and the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki have attracted attention from other worlds. It is obvious to many in the scientific community that if extraterrestrials exist they may be using a similar concentrated energy source to power their spacecraft. One of the men behind the Manhattan Project atomic tests is Vannevar Bush, the same man who is now head of Majestic 12. Vannevar Bush orders all Project Sign information from this moment on the American government's official public position is that extraterrestrials do not exist. But information leaks and insidious press coverage split Majestic 12 into two distinct factions. Those who feel the public must be made aware of UFOs and those who feel proof of alien life must never reach the public again. Coming up. The secret knowledge of an alien presence on Earth may have led to one of the most devastating events in American history.
2: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: This is Unsealed Alien Files. Exposing the biggest secret on planet Earth. Welcome back to Unsealed Alien Files. 1949. Majestic 12 is at a crossroads. Insiders are pushing for some public form of disclosure. And the man who oversees the organization, James Forrestal, feels the time is right to tell the public about the presence of UFOs. But there are also agents who will stop at nothing to prevent disclosure. How far would Forrestal's opponents go to keep a lid on the truth? Washington DC, March 9th, 1949. James Forrestal is asked by President Truman to step down as Secretary of Defense. Is Forrestal's forced retirement the result of his stance on declassifying the existence of alien life? As his health declines from stress he checks into Bethesda Hospital. On May 22, 1949 James Forrestal falls to his death from the hospital's 16th floor. The official cause of death suicide due to depression and nervous exhaustion. But as new evidence begins to surface, suspicion regarding Forrestal's death begins to grow. Broken glass is found in Forrestal's hospital bed, suggesting a struggle. There are allegations the suicide note left behind is not in Forrestal's handwriting. The military inquiry into the matter is classified top secret and not released. Washington DC January 20th 1953 Dwight D Eisenhower succeeds President Harry S Truman Eisenhower has a strong military background and is the first president to be aware of alien activity before taking office in 1952 Eisenhower is aboard the USS Roosevelt during a NATO training exercise at 1:30 a.m. a bright ball of light appears over the vessel hovering 100 feet above the water. Eisenhower and several others watch the UFO for over 20 minutes before it speeds off into the night sky. Upon taking office, Eisenhower digs deeper into rumors of unexplained phenomena. He becomes aware of Majestic 12 and demands to know the full extent of the alien threat. But Majestic 12 rejects the idea of letting anyone, including the president, into their inner circle. The president responds by sending a team to confront Majestic 12 on his behalf. An anonymous witness to these events recently attended the citizens' hearing in Washington, D.C. on UFO phenomena and the government. He's
6: trying to find out something about, all about these aliens. That MJ12 was supposed to find out, but never did. Never sent back reports to him. So he said, uh, "I want you to fly out there. I want you to give him a personal message." He says, "I want you to tell them, whoever is in charge, tell them that to get him into Washington." And to report to me. And if they don't, I'm going to get the First Army from Colorado, and we're going to go over, we're gonna take the base over. I don't care what kind of classified material you got. We're going to rip this thing apart.
3: Majestic 12 allegedly backs down, and the team is allowed access to Majestic 12's most sensitive information.
6: They like different saucer crafts. The very first one had the uh, Roswell craft.
3: But the greatest shock came in the lower depths of the base.
6: And then the colonel said, what we've got in here is we're interviewing a gray alien.
3: Returning to Washington, the team is debriefed by the president.
6: So he asked us what was going on. We told him about the alien, and he was just totally shocked. He appeared for the first time to be
3: worried. The president had sent a message to Majestic 12, but our anonymous field agent also received a message in return.
6: Two guys in a black suits came out of a black Lincoln town car and came over to see me. And he told me that I'd better not publish anything or talk about any more things.
3: If Majestic 12 was powerful enough to conceal this from the very government that controlled them, what other secrets were they keeping? Although the details of extraterrestrial contact are kept from him, Eisenhower's successor, John F. Kennedy, has ambitious plans for expansion into outer space. Two years after taking office in 1961, President Kennedy opens negotiations with Russian President Nikita Khrushchev. They agree that NASA and the Russian Space Agency would cooperate in joint missions to the moon and share any information they had about UFOs. But still, Majestic 12 refuses to declassify any UFO activity aware of their internal resistance on November 12 1963 President Kennedy allegedly issues a final order to Majestic 12 demanding they release all extraterrestrial information but 10 days after the agreement with Russia is signed John F Kennedy is dead did Majestic 12 participate in the assassination of JFK to prevent him from gaining access to information about extraterrestrial life The world may never know. Coming up, is increasing UFO activity a sign of an impending alien invasion? Or is an invasion even necessary if the group that was created to protect us has already betrayed us? These
7: are the Majestic 12 documents. They describe the establishment of a super-secret U.S. government organization in 1947 to deal with an alien spacecraft that allegedly crashed near Roswell, New Mexico. If genuine, they are the most important government documents ever leaked to the public. The question, however, that has dogged the documents from the first day they were released to the public in 1987 is whether or not they are authentic. To answer that question, I traveled to Aztec, a town in northern New Mexico. Like most small towns, Aztec has a main street, but that's not what it's famous for. In 1948, a flying saucer allegedly crashed just outside of town. And with the story of a crashed flying saucer has come the pop culture trappings of modern ufology, a museum, and a UFO symposium. Like any conference, a UFO symposium is a beehive of volunteer activity. They're also a lot of fun. But at their core, they're serious business. Because at a UFO symposium, at least at the good ones like Aztecs, you'll find these guys. Ufologists.
4: In 2003,
7: some of the best in the business were featured at the Aztec symposium. These are serious guys. Historians. Scientists. Authors. Internet whiz kids all of them dedicated to discovering the truth behind the UFO phenomenon. If this were a trial, they would be the expert witnesses. With every controversy, you need a yin and a yang. With Majestic 12, the yin is Carl Flock. He doesn't deny that some UFOs are probably alien spacecraft. He just doesn't believe there is any evidence that they were recovered by the government. Needless to say, he doesn't buy the Majestic 12 story.
8: And there's a fly down
7: there. The Yang system. is Stan Friedman. A nuclear physicist, Stan has been on the UFO beat for over three decades. He is the original civilian investigator of the Roswell incident, and the biggest advocate of the authenticity of the original Majestic 12 documents. Finally, there's these guys, the alleged members of Majestic 12. There's no question that they were an all-star group, top military leaders, scientists, and civil servants, They were among the best and the brightest that America had to offer in 1947. But were they members of this top-secret organization known as Majestic 12? Were they at the center of a government cover-up of extraterrestrial life? The skeptics say no, because, well, that's what Carl Flock is here for. So I'll let him handle the yin from here on in.
5: The first big problem with them is that there's no provenance. We don't know where they came from. We have, we don't know, none of the original documents are in hand. So there's no way you can test the paper. You cannot, you know, you can't really look at the inks. You can't, there's none of the stuff that you would normally do with a question document. You can't do it.
8: In The United States, at least at the time we got the memo, it was not against the law to have classified material that you were not entitled to. It was against the law if you were entitled to see classified material, if you had an appropriate clearance and need to know to photograph it. Certainly against the law To distribute it to somebody without a clearance so the guy at risk is the guy who took the pictures not the guy
4: who receives them secrecy protocols within the military in particular are extreme penalties are extreme Um, you sign away your constitutional rights in many cases when you are exposed to very very sensitive classified information and uh, in many cases this is binding for life so It's not that easy to just to go talking about what you've experienced we still don't know who deep throat was does that mean that whatever
8: information he provided is worthless because we don't know who he was he's the guy who was at risk remember and that's what we have to consider here too providence would be nice you make do you look at the documents for what they are and what they say not with any preconceived notion well i don't know who put this out there so it must be phony
4: that's nonsense that's not reasoning if you feel your life or Liberty is in danger by by releasing these documents of course you're going to want to remain anonymous it's an unfortunate situation that we can't um, verify all these things but guess what that is life that's life within the field of UFOs and the reason is because this is a, a problem pertaining to national security in other words this is not just a normal scientific topic on, as people like to say, a level playing field. There is no level playing field here. This is like a huge jigsaw puzzle. More than half the pieces have been taken out intentionally, fake pieces put in sometimes, and it's very difficult, very difficult to wend your way through this.
8: The NSA said that 23 of the documents that came from other agencies were from the CIA, which somehow the CIA hadn't found when it did its court-ordered search. So I filed for those 23 documents. After two years, I got nine. These were, as John described to you this morning, press abstracts of Eastern European newspaper articles about flying saucers, which the Russians had the day they were published. Their own 14 documents they withheld. I appealed. Three years after that, I got four. You'll see what they look like. There's a CIA UFO document. Boy, they're not keeping any secrets. But it's all released, Stan. There's no cover-up, I was told, by people in the UFO field. It's 99% sources and methods, they say, and 1% UFO, except it's filed under UFOs. Does this make any sense? Not to me, it doesn't.
9: Many times when people have requested documents through Freedom of Information Act, they they have asked that, don't don't put any sources or methods, and we, we don't want to know. We just want to know the details of the UFO sightings, since if there's nothing to them, and and, and the subject officially doesn't exist, what's the the problem with releasing this information? It still doesn't work. And the documents that that have been blacked out, uh, I I do think that that is the case. I can't can't prove it, of course, Uh, but sources or methods would not seem to encompass, say, uh, 75% of a document or 80% of a document when Stan holds up those pages blacked out. Uh, I I just cannot believe that that it's all... Well, the, the uh, operations sources methods there 's got to be some details of the UFO sightings in there, otherwise uh, you know, what 's the document concerned about then
0: we 've seen thousands of pages that are completely blacked out from top to bottom. you know maybe those are the m j twelve documents times two you know we don 't know what 's under those black lines and black paragraphs that maybe underneath that it tells a story that is so bizarre and so out there. Pardon the pun, but um, you look at that that maybe those are MJ-12 type documents that they talk about the UFO phenomenon being real being the you know extraterrestrial extraterrestrial life is is visiting us.
7: On the question of a government cover-up let me introduce you to the CIA's report of the Scientific Panel on Unidentified Flying Objects from 1953. Its conclusions? That the national security agencies take immediate steps to downplay the UFO phenomenon. The methods? a broad educational program by all agencies that would concentrate on training and debunking. This education would be accomplished by the mass media. All this despite the fact that the panel of eminent scientists accepted that the Earth might be visited by extraterrestrials. One panel member even found that the ET explanation in many cases was the only logical conclusion. Is it a coincidence that the panel was convened by Walter Beadle smith and included this man, Dr. Lloyd Berkner, both alleged members of Majestic 12. Unfortunately, in the field of ufology, the truth sometimes takes a backseat to innuendo and rumor. When that happens, the lines between fact and fiction can become crossed, and the difference between what is real and what is not can become that much harder to distinguish.
5: I consider that MJ-12 indeed was a hoax, that it was perpetrated in aid of advancing the case for Roswell. Um, Bill Moore and Stan Friedman, who had done a tremendous amount of uh, work together in investigating and looking into everything that they could find on Roswell. Jamie Chandray, who came into the picture somewhere along the line there, and I don't know exactly when, I think they sort of, you know, they were sitting around saying, okay, now what? And there have been extant in ufology for a long time, rumors to the effect that Bill Moore had suggested that it might be a good idea to fake some exotic documents that seem to confirm Roswell with the idea that this might smoke somebody out, uh, either to deny them or to produce real documents or whatever. And uh, it is said that uh, he and Stan Friedman and and uh, and maybe one or two others uh, talked about this together and that Stan said, well, yeah, why not? You know, I mean, if this will do it, why not? I have many
8: times heard that I supposedly said, yeah, it wouldn't be a bad idea, as suggested by Bill Moore, that documents be fake to try to get some more information about Roswell. Now, I had many meetings with Bill and Jamie and other people, so there's no question we had meetings and talked a lot and worked on projects together and so forth. I categorically deny that I ever was offered that possibility. Hey, why don't we fake some documents? Or that I ever said something like, oh, that's a good idea.
5: I think that's what was going on. I think that, you know, there was a. The idea was to, if you put the most innocent spin on it that you can, it was to smoke something out if you put the nuts so of innocent spin on it it was to essentially fake documents that would back up the roswell story as it was told and as it was known uh through the roswell incident because if you look at it that's what it does it's the version of roswell as written down as set down and in the roswell incident
7: that sounds like a pretty good theory except for one major problem The Roswell incident describes two crashes, one near Roswell and one in western New Mexico at the plains of San Agustin. This second crash is not mentioned in the MJ-12 documents. Bill Moore would not appear on camera for this film. However, I corresponded with him a number of times. He steadfastly maintains that he had no knowledge of or involvement in any Majestic 12 hoax.
9: What is so obvious about it that reveals it to be a hoax? Because Stan has spent an awful lot of years, an awful lot of time, an awful lot of money, trying to show that they're not hoaxes, such t- to the end that if they are, they're mighty subtle, they're mighty intricate, and and it's a hoax with many moving parts. And yes, you can carry off a hoax with many moving parts, but there are so many coincidences here, so many things that were unknown seemingly prior to Stan going out and looking into various nooks and crannies of the archives, the, the vast national archive system of the United States. That
8: nobody knew before. Uh, things like the date when uh, Walter B. Smith was named to replace uh, James Forrestal, who had died as a member of uh, MJ 12, August 1st, 1950. There's nothing special about that date, except I had the Truman Library people tell me all the times that Truman met with Walter B. Smith. That was the one day in a 10 month period of time. And they Met at the uh, west door of the White House. Purpose of meeting unstated. Now I asked the Truman people, the Library people, have you provided this information to
4: anybody else? No. How could somebody get that date right? Stanton Friedman has, has doggedly researched this issue, in my opinion, and has done an outstanding job in showing that the arguments of the of those debunkers of these documents are really not all that good and they don't they don't hold up um, when you analyze them carefully.
8: Okay, here's the top of page two. Briefing officer, Admiral Roscoe H. Hillencoder, MJ1. Now, okay, we've just killed it according to another objection. It says admiral. He wasn't an admiral, he was a rear admiral. Military officer, very conscious of rank. Why did he use a generic title? A lot of people don't understand that you use the term general in common usage in the military to mean brigadier general, major general, lieutenant general, four-star general. You use the word admiral to be vice, rear, and full admiral. Colonel to be colonel and lieutenant colonel. Now, they don't sign anything that way, but they're addressed that way. They can answer the phone saying, Colonel Jones, even if they're only a lieutenant colonel.
5: There, there's a casual use of rank for various officers that are listed in there. They talk to refer to a general instead of a lieutenant general. They refer to an admiral instead of a re- calling him a rear admiral, which he was at the time, and so on. And the the group of twelve was a mix of military and civilian personnel. Okay, they're all put in a single list. There's no particular protocol listing, and uh, you know, in other words, with the highest-ranking people first and then going down the line. And to me, that's suspicious. A bigger problem, to my mind, is is that the civilians and the military are all listed together in a single list. In documents like this that I have worked with, that I have created myself, and in fact in which I have been listed, you list the civilians in one column and the the military people in the other column, and you rank them in protocol order with the highest ranking people first. So you separate them out into two separate groups. And uh, these kind of protocol questions are not trivial to people in government or particularly in the military his point here is totally wrong.
8: The coup de grace came when I visited the Eisenhower Library recently and managed to get a number of memos written by Brigadier General Andrew J. Goodpaster, Ike's staff secretary. These are memos about conferences held with Ike and other people, the head of the CIA, the Secretary of State, mixed bag, mixed civilian and military. At the top he lists all the attendees, the civilians, and they're, not, they're mixed in together. They're not all civilian and then all military. It's just some kind of random order, if you will, including General Goodpastor for himself. And General this, who was only a two-star general and three-star general. When I was at the Eisenhower Library, I was able to find out the ranks of all these guys. They've got some really good information there. He signs it, Brigadier General Goodpastor. He calls himself a general, not brigadier general, in the listing. So the fact that Admiral Coder, who was director of central intelligence when all this stuff went down in '47, called himself admiral, both as the briefing officer and as a member of the group, does not invalidate it at all. And I asked two different Eisenhower Library archivists, what about this generic, that's the way they did things, he said. There's nothing strange about that, that's the way it was.
7: Circumstantial evidence is important in determining the authenticity of the MJ-12 documents. That's not enough for the skeptics, however, who won't believe in flying saucers until one actually lands on the White House lawn. What they want are actual documents from actual archives that reference Majestic 12. And even if you find those documents, that might not be enough.
10: There is one document, however, which we were able to get our hot little hands on, uh, an original, essentially, original carbon copy of the uh, so-called Cutler Twining document. Uh, It does mention MJ-12 slash SSP, which we assume stands for a special study group. And that's a document that we can hold on to that says MJ-12.
5: Okay, the Color Twining memo is of the, of the original uh, MJ 12 documents, is the only really original document. Uh, this one uh, was found by, oddly enough, Bill Moore and Jamie Chandaray at the U.S. National Archives when they were there going through a set of recently declassified Air Force documents.
8: The reason they went to Washington is that I had been in touch when I made a visit to attend a technical seminar on food irradiation. I gave a paper in Washington in like March. And I checked in with the National Archives, which I always do, and Ed Reese told me, the archivist that we'd been dealing with for years, uh, that they were working on classification review of an Air Force headquarters file, entry 267, headquarters intelligence stuff. Wow several times in the next few months we got bill and jamie got strange postcards that seemed to point toward going to washington dc the return address was post-homps box one eighty nine Ababa, ethiopia and it was mailed from new zealand none of which made any sense <laughs> so bill and jamie went off to washington they found another document a memo from bobby cutler robert cutler to Uh, General Nathan Twining, one of the members of MJ-12. Only after they found the Cutler Twining memo and asked Ed Reese to copy it, make a Xerox copy of it, that they realized it was box 189, which had been mentioned on these postcards. That's the box it was in. It was like somebody was trying to give them a clue. And I should point out that that box was first handled two weeks after the death of the last member of MJ-12. Hardly a coincidence. He'd been the last surviving member for two years, Dr. Hunsaker. His obituary was in the New York Times on September the 12th, died on September 10th, 1984. The box was first handled two weeks later. And it sounds like the motion was in progress, in other words. I couldn't get the archives. They said they couldn't tell me. I asked the names of the people who handled that box. They gave me an accounting. It was first handled on this date, then handled again before it was served to the public, and Bill and Jamie were the public following July. They would never tell me the names of the people I asked specifically, and they said they
5: couldn't do that. Without in, you know, putting myself in the position of being indicted uh, by a federal prosecutor, I can tell you that I know that it's possible to take things in that you're not supposed to take in and take them back out again, uh, without anyone ever being aware of it. Um, It may be different today in the current atmosphere, but back when, I actually conducted an experiment. I took something in with me, and it was never picked up on. There's false logic here.
8: With
2: lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
5: Dearly beloved, we are
1: gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time
2: more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting.
1: Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
2: I never win and tell.
1: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
8: That it could have been done means it was done? They spent an awful lot of time... Why would they have to go to Washington to come up with the document, get it in the mail just as the roll of film came in the mail? If they faked it, why would they use a strange security marking, top secret, restricted? you go with the normal, which would have been just plain top secret. They could have rubber-stamped it top and bottom, make it look official. So they've got somebody who's very bright and very stupid. Which is it?
10: For that to happen, you know, with the MJ-12, the the Eisenhower briefing document coming out in 1984 and people saying, oh, it probably had been faked within a year or so of when it was made public, and presumably this uh, Cutler Twining document would have also been faked within a year or two of its its discovery, Uh, I would say no, I would say that uh, this had to be an old document, 30, 40, maybe 50 years old, well not in 1980, 30 years old probably in 1980 four or five or whatever it would take that long for this outer edge to get yellowed um, it the creases that had been made in this were perfectly flat again indicating there was a lot of pressure on it for a long time um, and as others have pointed out it was a onion skin paper with a watermark that was made at the that was being used by the uh, government at the time that this document would have been made so I think that provides uh, rather credible evidence that um, the MJ-12 thing, group, whatever is real.
8: You could say they faked it all. That's easy to say. it's all a fraud. That avoids having to do the work to establish it and avoids dealing with the critiques of the critiques. Oh, it's obviously a fraud. Why is it a fraud? Well, nobody used that top secret restricted. That's crazy. Restricted is the lowest rating. Top secret is the highest. Who would combine those two? That's ridiculous. It turns out, the easy way out, is that the General Accounting Office, when they were doing their study for Representative Schiff from New Mexico here, they were looking all over the country at all kinds of document archives for documents about Roswell. And one of their entries in a 400-page book about all the things they did was that we were looking through these files up through Top Secret on December 7th, 1994, and we didn't find anything about Roswell. However we did notice several instances of the use of top-secret restricted, even though we had been told, Majestic 12 in parentheses, that it was not in use at the time. If the GAO says so, it's good enough for me.
7: The problem with investigating the UFO phenomenon is that just when you think you've made it to the top of the proverbial hill, and you can see your destination, you have to turn off the road you were on and head in a new direction to a place you never would have expected. In the case of Majestic 12, that place was the strange and secret world of Dr. Donald Howard Menzel.
10: One of the reasons they held off in announcing the fact that they had these documents was uh, they were trying to track down every per- every person who was listed in that list, and tracking down, and justifying the presence of Menzel on there was
5: difficult, at le- at the at the least. Now, Menzel uh, was a you know the leading skeptic uh, of flying saucers back in the 50s and 60s, and I mean and vehemently skeptical in a way that I've never been able to understand. I mean absolutely irrationally skeptical.
8: That gave us pause. How could Menzel be a part of this group? Obviously this is a joke. Some wise guy put this thing together and is waiting for us to say, hey, look at what we got, and then say, gotcha, I did it. So we were very cautious. And so I I checked around and found that uh, there were a lot of Menzel papers, but certainly nothing indicating he was on the government side of the fence on on flying saucers. Then I inquired at Harvard, and Harvard archives had a whole bunch of Menzel papers well I'd like to come see them well you'll need permission written permission from three different people to see the papers turns out Donald H Menzel UFO skeptic had the longest continuous association with the National Security Agency and its Navy predecessor of anybody in the country he said to Jack Kennedy president before he was president actually when we are properly cleared to each other I can tell you more he said He had a top-secret ultra-clearance with the CIA. He was a cryptographer, taught cryptography, code-breaking and making before the war. Uh, That he had continued after the war as head of the Naval Reserve Unit, Communications Unit No. 1 in Cambridge, which is where Harvard is. And he did classified work for about 30 different companies. I went away from there convinced that, hey, maybe this document might be true because Menzel passed muster, much to my total surprise.
11: I think the the Donald Menzel aspect of the whole Majestic 12 controversy is probably one of the most eye-opening. That you had this guy who was the arch-debunker of his time writing anti-UFO books with down-to-earth explanations. And then you find that he, he led this double life where he had high-level links with the intelligence community, and did consulting and contract work for them and, and had done so for decades. And regardless of whether or not he really was connected to some sort of Majestic 12 group, he was very well able to, to hide this
8: double life that he had. I discovered that Dr. Menzel had a close connection with Vannevar Bush, dating back to 1934. Now, Bush had been at MIT. During World War II, he was sort of the science czar. And I had discovered in Bush's papers at the Library of Congress Manuscript Division, a letter, a mysterious letter to me. It was from a law firm to Dr. Bush, thanking him for all his efforts with regard to the loyalty trial of Donald Menzel. And that fortunately, uh, Menzel had been totally cleared. We really appreciate all the effort you made. It was 1950. And it turned out Bush, who didn't have to testify in favor of anybody, uh, he spoke extremely well of Menzel's efforts during the war. And it was clear he knew what they were. It was all together kind of a big thing to see Menzel connected with Bush, who had clearances for everything and you know it was right top dog in all the classified projects
11: if it was shown upon Stan's investigations that Menzel was simply that a debunker then that would have actually have suggested that his involvement in Majestic 12 was bogus and by implication the documents were bogus but because of the fact that Stan was able to show that Menzel did lead this double life and was heavily connected with US intelligence that to me is a pointer that whoever put the Majestic 12 documents together, was aware of the fact that Menzel would
5: pass muster upon investigation. Stan Friedman spent a lot of time uh, looking into Menzel's career and he discovered that Menzel had a, uh, uh, you know, he actually had a quote, secret life. He was, you know, he was a, a naval reserve officer, he, did, he, was, a, he was a cryptographer, a crypt cryptanalyst and so forth for the National Security Agency and a variety of other things this was not such a big secret as 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 i think stan seemed to think it was i mean if you knew anything about menzel you could you would have some general inkling that he was doing these kinds of things he was involved in them but even before mj-12 the question of
8: whether anybody knew about donald menzel's uh, high security background is an interesting one you won't find it anywhere there, there were people writing about menzel and his lousy explanations for ufo sightings but nobody pointing out his very tight connection with the intelligence community. Now, Carl, because he was a member of the intelligence community and happened to be at the right place at the right time, was aware that Menzel was doing stuff for them. Nobody else knew that. Now, if somebody wants to suggest Carl prepared the documents, forged them, I'd say he couldn't have because there were other things that he didn't know that had to be known to get the documents right but nobody else any of the uh, the favorite choices bill moore or whatever knew this stuff about menzel remember you couldn't walk in off the street and get this you had to get written permission from people to see those papers it's it's easy to
9: dismiss and broad brush these documents and say oh, oh obvious hoax who would ever put menzel on well it turns out that menzel's presence there on that list maybe did really serve a purpose and stan has gone to great lengths to say why that is the case and has shown why it is the case It wasn't
10: until Stan had done this investigation of Menzel himself and found out that Menzel was living sort of like a double life uh, that it was possible to justify the idea that, well, yeah, Menzel might be on the list after all if he's uh, trying to do cryptanalysis of the writings and uh, uh, being a um, um, sort of almost like a public figure out of all those people. A public figure is associated with a major university and his word would carry some authority in it, so if he says it's all than uh, (laughs) uh,
5: the general public would tend to believe it. Personally, I think it was a very clever both red herring and a joke. Because in the document, it specifically says, you know, they talk about the origins. They say, well, we've considered the origins of the saucers. Where do they come from? And one of the membership of the MJ-12, Dr. Menzel, notably Dr. Menzel, says that he thinks they came from Mars. Well, menzel was notorious for his obsession with mythical martians uh, he sketched them all the time he doodled them all the time he did paintings of them having menzel say i think they came from mars is this clever little hello uh, uh, you know they, we're, this is really not real
8: it would appear that carl flock hasn't read the mj-12 document it is very clear in there that it is said that while others thought they might be from Mars, some of the scientists, most notably Dr. Menzel, said it was from outside our solar system, the source. He didn't say they were from Mars, he said they weren't from Mars. It's one of those arguments that sounds great until you realize that it's exactly the opposite of what is said. I can imagine the military people saying, well, where could they be from if they're not from here? And Somebody's first thought, you know, War of the Worlds and all the science fiction about Mars, uh, would be Mars.
10: On July 29, 1952, uh, General John A. Sanford, who was the director of uh, Air Force Intelligence, uh, held a press conference. He had been directed to hold a press conference and talk about what was going on. And on that, in that press conference that started about 4 o'clock in the afternoon on that day, He said that uh, we have investigated between 1,000 and 2,000 sightings and have explained the bulk of them to our satisfaction. The FBI sent their liaison person to the Air Force to find out what was going on with all these sightings. Uh, The FBI man uh, was told something rather different from what the general public was told. First of all, the FBI man was told that uh, there are some percentage of sightings that could not be explained. Furthermore... According to this FBI document, some of the military officials were seriously considering the possibility of interplanetary ships, such as ships from Mars.
8: And I can see the scientists, especially Menzel, he was the only astronomer in the group, saying no, not from Mars. Mars isn't a place where you're going to find any intelligent life. Remember, there has to be somebody who's living there now, not a million years ago, which is a wholly other matter. And I can see Menzel saying no, not from Mars, from other solar systems. So what Carl claims is an argument against it as an inside joke is nonsense. It isn't that at all. It makes perfectly good sense. It would be if it were the other way around. But it isn't.
7: Here's a few other interesting facts about the secret life of Dr. Menzel. He knew and corresponded with Admiral Roscoe Hillencoder. In 1963, Menzel sent him a copy of his anti-UFO book and asked Hillencoder what he thought of it. In a letter where there is just as much between the lines as there is in them Hillenkoder replied that the book was very well done and that menzel had effectively put to rest all surmises about flying saucers being from outer space you have done a thorough and praiseworthy job hillencoder said to menzel this was followed by a letter from hillencoder to his old chum major donald Kehoe, a leading proponent of flying saucers in which hillencoder stated he had never carried on any conversation with menzel about ufos and that he took no position on statements regarding UFOs made by Menzel. In 1958, the CIA received a request for the declassification of the entire Robertson panel report from UFO investigator Leon Davidson. Who did the CIA and the members of the Robertson panel turn to for advice? That's right, Dr. Donald Menzel, who suggested rewording the report to cover things up even more. That Menzel was involved with the panel shouldn't come as a surprise, considering that they had listed amateur astronomers as one of the best tools for spreading the government's UFO gospel to the public. Menzel, as one of the nation's leading astronomers, would have been a natural choice to head this effort. Finally, there's the whole Martian thing. Here is a letter to then-Senator John Kennedy, in which Menzel talks about working on the Mars probe and urges Kennedy to support the project. It seems Mars meant more to him than just little doodles in a notebook. The path to enlightenment in the world of UFOs can take you to some pretty strange places. So it was that I ended up one day at an abandoned radar base in El Vado, northern New Mexico, with UFO researcher Scott Ramsey, where I would discover the relationship between truth and fiction and the UFO phenomenon for myself.
11: It's a proven fact, a verifiable fact from the documents that have been declassified, that the FBI and the Air Force had a meeting in October 1988 to discuss the documents. The Air Force assured the FBI that the documents were completely bogus, and this was in a meeting that no notes were taken Uh, in the meeting between the Air Force and the FBI. It was just a a verbal uh,
8: arrangement. Nick Redford sent me a copy of a letter he got from Air Force Colonel Weaver. He's the man who wrote the Air Force's roswell report the big fat roswell report fact versus fiction in the new mexico desert the air force supplied the fiction unfortunately monster okay he sent me a copy of that letter in which colonel weaver goes on and on about everybody knows these documents are bogus and he sent him along a copy with the word handwritten bogus in big letters on each page so i filed a freedom of information act request with that office saying i'd like copies of all memos letters all this sort of thing there's a whole list of things you have to say if you want to cover everything uh that led to that conclusion response to my request was we have nothing in response to your request so i was not too surprised when later on i was told the fbi has the mj-12 documents on their website wow i went and looked and you can tell that they're exactly the same document that was sent to nick redford the bogus is identical you could put the two pages and they're handwritten now, not a rubber stamp so what is the basis for the fbi saying they're bogus it's colonel weaver saying they're bogus what's the basis for colonel weaver saying they're bogus nothing he didn't say that's classified which is what i expected an evaluation
4: he said we have nothing if you're trying to manage this problem and you're trying to control the UFO problem. Uh, the, the real problem becomes not to slam that lid down 100 percent because that's that is impossible. The real issue, it seems to me, is to neutralize or make useless information that does come out. Colonel Weaver seemed to have no
8: qualms about lying in his Air Force Roswell report. He deliberately left out a qualifying clause in an FBI memo, which subsequent. Communication had not borne out the belief, uh, this is basically it, that this was a balloon that was found. He left that part out to turn the meaning around 180, leaving the FBI says it was a balloon. Well, if you read the memo, which he doesn't provide, it doesn't say it was a balloon. It says just the
4: opposite. They found out it wasn't a balloon. This is disinformation. There's the pro side, and then you offer the con, and you sow the seed of doubt in the public mind so that you realize you're not going to convince everyone, but you'll convince enough people so that people doubt. Well, was Roswell this or was it that? Or uh, was this object a real flying saucer or maybe a weather balloon? Um, If you sow the seed of doubt, action will usually not follow the knowledge. And that's really the only thing that they care about.
11: I think when people talk about the government knowing things or the intelligence community, there's this image is formed in people's minds that the minute you walk into the US Air Force or the NSA or the CIA that you're simply told this dark and deep secret about crashed UFOs which I certainly don't think is the case. I think for the most part employees of the CIA, the NSA, the Air Force the British government are no more in the know about this subject than anybody on the outside and I think the whole way that secrecy is kept is by hiding information and by ensuring that Certain people only know certain aspects of the story or enough to do their own job and I think that is why the secrecy has been maintained.
10: The air force uh, from nineteen forty seven onwards uh, at first believed at uh, first took the attitude that everything that we were, that we were rep- people were reporting was probably real. It turns up in the uh, twining uh, general Twining's letter in september of nineteen forty seven saying that the things that are being seen are real and not visionary or fictitious and yet by 1949 1950 uh, the project grudge and project blue book people um, were trying to sweep everything under the rug saying it was all misidentifications hoaxes or delusions Uh, I believe that was a result of um, uh, general when general Vandenberg rejected the so-called estimate of the situation Uh, in the estimate of the situation written in the summer of 1948 um, Air Force intelligence at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base had concluded that these flying saucers were real interplanetary and we've been told in the only reference that we have on this Captain Ed Ruppelt's book the report on unidentified flying objects he says that uh, Vandenberg rejected the um, estimate of the situation thereby setting a policy that ET was not acceptable exp- acceptable explanation for UFO sightings
0: everybody has to look at why they're doing this you know not necessarily the evidence not necessarily the stories but why are they doing this you know you've got 50 years of blacked out documents of stories being changed like the roswell incident four times and you've got manuals that, that come out that are reporting these things and they're just trying to lie to you and say since you know the late 60s they haven't reported these ufos yet both military and commercial pilots are reporting these things what are you left with to decide you know what this phenomenon is is it an unidentified space object like a comet or a meteorite or something or a planet you know like they tried to explain some of the blue book files way it doesn't seem plausible the only thing that seems really plausible is this conspiracy is massive you know that the government is hiding this stuff for so long and they're trying so hard to keep it from us Um, i think the last question would be why and that's what we all have to kind of answer for ourselves
12: this was it down here it's 1947
4: 1948 and you happen to be the president of the United States let's say that you learn something important about UFO problem let's say let's even go a step further and say like some people claim that you got access to some sort of hardware that didn't belong to you if you're not going to share atomic technology with the world what on earth would you do with something as exotic as alien hardware good Lord you're going to keep it so hidden, you'll have to hide it from yourself. You'd have to restrict access to the most absolutely, utterly, crucially reliable people that you know about, and that's it, and have them figure out what the heck this stuff is, what it can do.
10: And uh, they would be sort of like the, uh, uh, the troll under the bridge that uh, says you anybody has to have a high security clearance. They make them pay for getting in to see <laughs> whatever this hard evidence is. Uh, they're controlling the doorway to the evidence Uh, and information might
11: flow into that doorway but it not likely to flow out i am convinced that something very very strange happened at roswell and personally I, i do think there's a lot of credible testimony that suggests it was a crashed ufo and that alien bodies very very possibly were recovered i think what probably happened in the wake of that though was that when the story began to leak out various deception programs and operations were put into place and anyone who dared to become involved in investigating these things who was outside of the loop would simply find themselves in this mass of confusion a kind of a hall of mirrors where it was kind of difficult to know where the truth began and the rumors and the fake stories ended Majestic 12, it all comes
7: down to the Roswell incident fact or fiction in the New Mexico desert but who's fact, and who's fiction?
12: When the Air Force took it over, it became the Tia Amaria. And then later on in life, Elvado. Vado. You dare to go in? Sure, let's, uh, let's take a look. You you're not afraid of bats, are you? Well, I don't want to get bitten by one. This is that right here.
1: not. <laughs> I guarantee you don't. And some people speculate that the uh,
7: the radar here was powerful enough to uh, interfere somehow with an alien cr- spacecraft. That's that's a theory. It might have brought it down. Mm-hmm.
12: And they would have had similar radar stations, I assume, down by Roswell. They had one in uh, Corona. And uh, if you read the historical reports we were going through last night, they also had one down at Walker. Which was Roswell. Right, right. Coincidence? Yeah, maybe, huh? Where to next?
7: Well, let's go up and take a look at where the radar
12: was actually put in place. Oh, okay. There's a couple of different sites up there. Okay. Then we'll head to the Officers Club. There you go. I'm hungry. I'm hungry.
5: I'll buy you a drink.
7: None of this proves Roswell happened, of course or that the Majestic 12 documents are genuine. What it does show, however, is that you shouldn't always believe the skeptics, who for years, until Scott proved them wrong, maintained that the Elvado base did not exist at the time of the Roswell incident. A hall of mirrors, indeed.
8: I think this is the real project. The manpower makes sense. The documents seem to stand up to very strong scrutiny when you start digging into what's at the archives and looking at other documents and looking at the people and all the rest of that. And so I consider these the most important documents, classified government documents, ever leaked to the public. They say that we're not alone in the universe, they say we're not the big shots in the universe, they say the government has known this since 1947, has had an operating group looking after things since that time.
7: Still not convinced that, in the words of Buffalo Springfield, there's something happening here well consider a memo written by this man Canadian government engineer Wilbert Smith who in 1950 met with dr. Robert Sarbacher, a distinguished American scientist working with the US Department of Defense research and development board the subject of their conversation flying saucers the memo the substance of which was confirmed decades later by Sarbacher, stated that flying saucers exist that they are classified higher than the H-bomb and that a concentrated effort was being made by a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush to determine their modus operandi. Was that group Majestic 12? In my opinion, on the balance of probabilities, if not quite beyond a reasonable doubt, the answer is yes.
13: Do UFOs exist? This is the central question raised in this program. Many sightings may be attributed to what a natural phenomena or experimental aircraft, amongst other things. By the end of this program, we hope to have shown you undeniable evidence that UFOs exist and that they are controlled by an outside intelligence. Let some witnesses speak for themselves. Giovanni Cavezio, a wingrover,
14: sorvolavo una zona molto molto conosciuta e non c'era nulla di particolare, no. Ad un tratto però la I was hang gliding over an area I knew well. cosa di di così, di inusueto, no.
13: It was nothing special. stallava verso l'orizzonte My attention was attracted by something unusual.
14: It was going towards the horizon,
13: above the woods. It was something I couldn't define, considering the distance. The shape was about 2,000 meters away, and the closer I came, the more the object became difficult to define. It was hovering like a helicopter, but I realized it was nothing like that. It generated a very strong light and lacked hard outlines. It had a very strong, bright halo of light. When it was three to 4,000 meters, it went away from me in a very impressive way. It was so fast that you could barely follow it with your eyes.
14: In form, it was
13: dome like, with three or four objects hanging from the sides. The diameter was between five and ten meters, and it was lead colored.
14: Within a moment, it had disappeared over the
13: horizon, without a sound and without a smoke trail or
14: anything.
13: I wanted to keep it to myself, as these sort of things are unexpected.
14: That evening, when I got home, I didn't even talk to any family about it later
13: when I went to a restaurant I met a friend interested in hang gliding who had seen me flying in the area
14: he insisted I must have
13: seen something special because he had looking up he would seen something
14: which he couldn't define but which had
13: hurtled across the sky and then disappeared
14: Recandomi un po' più tardi al ristorante, incontrai un amico interessato di volo libero il quale eh, mi disse di avermi visto eh, attraversare... We decided that he had
13: seen the same thing as myself.
14: Insistendo insistendo nell'affermare che io avrei dovuto per forza aver osservato qualche cosa di molto particolare. Perché lui, trovandosi in zona fiume e guardando verso l'alto, vide a un certo punto un qualche cosa di indefinibile che si stagliava contro il cielo e che poi dopo scomparve dal suo angolo visivo anche io dopo un momentino così eh, decisi di, di, di dirgli insomma quello che più o meno avevo visto
13: In this second interview, we have the experience of another witness. She relates a similar story to many thousands of others, with a harsh halo of light behind which a sphere or disc appears and then disappears away at very high speed.
6: Miriam Bizzazaro, housewife.
13: I got up to go to the toilet and the shutters were down. I opened them. I saw a ship on the lawn. My curiosity got the better of me
15: and looked out.
13: I saw something suspended over the house, but I couldn't describe it. It had a white illuminated base, rounded sides, with a red band on the right and a blue band on the left. Its shape was triangular. The center was a kind of pulsating band of light. C'era qualcosa? Sì, sì,
15: c'era proprio l'impressione si vedeva appunto questo.
13: Oh, yes. You could see grey quando si
15: dilattavano le fasce.
13: But they were covered by the pulsating.
15: L'unica cosa, controllando appunto con l'orologio delle pulsazioni, ho notato che le lancette erano sovrapposte sulle tre. Mentre io pensavo al massimo, il più tardi, le due, meno alle 1.45. I
13: noticed that the hands of the clock were on three, then quarter past three, then it was quarter to
15: five.
13: What happened to that lost hour and a quarter?
15: I can't remember what happened. But the
13: next day, my daughter-in-law's mother noticed a strange shape on my left temple. I said, I hadn't hurt myself, and it was very small. The sequence is usually the same. A UFO sighting, a temporary absence and a mark on the head. Perhaps this was an abduction, a strange case, but no different to thousands of others. Several people have said that they saw it, people who work at the airport, including a pilot. After several days, the police took my statement. They also told me to keep the incident quiet. On the theme of abductions, the recent scientific studies of the medical evidence have started to confirm some of these stories. These Swiss witnesses prefer to remain anonymous. Suddenly, in the rear view mirror, I saw a red light about the size of a table tennis ball, which stopped about a meter and a half from my car. It was about 10 by 15 centimeters across. Suddenly, it started to oscillate from left to right. It moved from the left side of the car And then to the right everything was bright red even inside the car then at the height of that rock you can see up there on the right-hand side of the road the car rose before I lost consciousness I saw the little red ball flip to the back seat then at about 30 meters from that building up there there was a white glow and I found myself on the road again this is a rare case of abduction inside the car itself we know of others in both South America and the USA. It was about 10.30 p.m. Three yellow beacons were suspended about 10 meters over the forest. They shone for about 15 to 20 minutes. They didn't move. I went towards the forest to see what it was. In my opinion, it was a spaceship. It had a distinctive shape and those lights on top of it. Having reached this tree here, I decided to go up the hill for a better view.
12: I went up the slope, and when
13: I reached the hilltop, I found myself face to face with an enormous hemisphere of light, which at the base was between 10 and 15 meters across. I got nearer, and my whole body started to shake. In front of me, a UFO was producing a deafening sound, emitting similar vibrations to a transformer. At a point, I ran into a wall of lights as solid as if I'd run into a concrete wall. I got close three or four times, and every time I ran into this wall. After about 15 to 20 minutes, the UFO took off like a helicopter. It went silently, except for a slight hissing noise. No more than three minutes later, Two Swiss Army Mirage jets flew over. This barrier of light is talked of time and time again by independent witnesses. The following is a statement by a senior airline pilot with years of flying experience, highly trained, and who has been regularly examined by medical experts
5: Stefano Gera, Swiss Air Captain.
13: I was flying over the Alps in the region of Biasca at 5,000 meters when I saw a light to the north which a few seconds later I lost from my field of vision
16: I didn't manage to see it again At that
13: moment Another pilot was flying in an easterly direction, in the same area of the Alps, and asked radar if there was an object in the same place where I'd seen
16: my object. It
13: wasn't visible to radar control. The pilot said he saw a strange, unidentified form, which, which corresponded to the, the one I'd seen in my airspace he couldn't explain it and said apparently it was quite big but clearly not an
16: airplane ho visto questa non siamo riusciti a spiegarci cosa fosse avuto occasione di parlare con questo pilota ha dichiarato di aver visto una forma che apparentemente sembrava estremamente grande, eh, abbastanza aguzza, eh, circa tre volte di lunghezza per una volta di altezza. E appunto non era identificabile come un aeromobile, non era identificabile come né piccolo aereo né aereo di linea. Quindi non poteva potrebbe essere meteorite. trattarsi nemmeno di un meteorite.
13: No, because meteorites move, and this one was stationary. Probably the object didn't show on the ground radar at that point, because it wasn't moving like a normal aeroplane. It was an enormous area of white light as big as four jumbo jets. According to both pilots, it stopped and then went away and was neither an aeroplane nor a meteorological phenomena. Captain Schmidt, Swisser. The radar station at Maastricht informed us that a UFO was proceeding in a northerly direction. It then turned towards us at a speed of four to 5,000 kilometers an hour, very fast indeed. Eventually, it stabilized in relation to our position to three nautical miles to our right at 45 degrees. That's about five kilometers from us. We put on the headphones and looked to the right. And suddenly there was uh, an immense flash in front of us. I hadn't seen anything like it. Very fast and very intense. The radio didn't give any signal. Nothing at all. Maastricht told us that the object stopped for a minute behind us. And then went south at great speed. It was traveling four to five times the speed of sound. Later, I read the report of the radar controller. After checking the data, he wrote the speed was double that, which means it was 10 to 12,000 kilometers an hour. It went away in a southerly direction. It returned and went away again.
17: It was as if it was playing
13: hide-and-seek with us. The UFO was enormous, very fast, and it was flying at ten to 12,000 kilometers an hour. It was seen on radar and seemed to play with the airliner, not behavior that you would expect of a military or experimental aircraft. And this is how another Swiss air pilot explained his experience. Captain Peter Bercher, Swiss Air. Suddenly the object, which had flown with us for a while, veered and then at top speed disappeared turning through 90
4: degrees.
13: I think that this behavior would exclude a natural explanation of the phenomenon since the object resembled no known flying object. It was practically suspended in the air in front of us. It then went away at a high speed, veering at 90 degrees in relation to our route. No known flying object can do such a thing. Many civil pilots are reluctant to talk about their sightings of UFOs. They don't want to be ridiculed, and often they want to protect their flight crew. Military pilots are bound by official secrecy for the duration of their service. Captain Duveston, Swiss Air. At first, we thought we were seeing a star, or at least we believe it to be a shooting star. But straight away I told myself that it wasn't possible because of its speed. It fell gently to the horizon and then oscillated a little to the left, and then to the right, and then left and right. It then returned to its original position. All of this in less than 30 seconds. That's far from normal. Have you spoken about this to military pilots? I've spoken to American military pilots in Alaska. They told me that they've reported many strange things in those out-of-the-way places, but that they weren't allowed to discuss these things. So you think that the military pilots know more than they can uh, tell about
6: UFOs? Have they also observed this kind of stuff and just can't
13: speak about it?
16: Oh, sure, sure.
13: One impressive, well-documented case is reconstructed here by Nippon TV when a 707 was flying over Alaska on the 17th of November, 1986. At 5 p.m., during the flight, Commander Teraushi observed two red lights getting nearer. The control tower anchorage didn't detect anything present in the area. The lights got nearer and
17: nearer. The
13: three pilots felt a wave of heat.
17: Then the lights disappeared
13: shortly after two white lights appeared
17: yes. the radar
13: screen indicated the proximity of the object
17: and the object
13: began to shadow the airplane in the direction of Fairbanks, Alaska Thanks to the contrast of the city lights, the crew could see the outline of the object. We couldn't believe our eyes, it was 30 to 40 times bigger than a Boeing 707. We tried to shake off this object and I veered the 707 away. The control tower asked if we required the intervention of a military fighter. We replied that it would be too dangerous, as an LL airplane needed to cross our flight path. Towards 6 p.m., the object disappeared. The sighting lasted for an hour. These are the sketches by Captain Tarashi. Both he and his crew saw enormous UFOs. It was under control, and he felt there was every possibility that it hadn't been constructed on Earth. As well as the testimonies, there are photographs and film sequences which document UFO sightings. These have been gathered from all over the world, including films shot in the skies over Mexico, taken by a group of video activists calling themselves the Vigilantes, who have about a hundred members. We're a group of friends from the Four Corners of Mexico. We always have video cameras with us, at work, at school, so that we're always ready to film a UFO as it appears. The film sequences have been examined by the Institute for Information Science at Seoul University in Mexico City. They subjected the film to a battery of advanced
16: tests. Our
13: work consisted of verifying that there were no distortions of the photographs or any elements of the detail in the video recordings, which might have cast doubt on their authenticity. Besides computer verification, we also checked on the spot, interviewed witnesses, and evaluated witness credibility.
16: In videos In this video, shot in 1991
13: during a total eclipse of the sun the television camera focused on a bright object in the sky. It then panned down to the roofs to establish the relative position and distance of the UFO. Here is the object on the film editor's screen. It's like a spinning top or a saucer, which is turning. And now another UFO in the Mexican sky. Let's look at it again on the editor's screen. These are totally amazing images. This is 1992. Watch the UFO as it moves about the sky. Here it is, captured closer.
3: Mm
14: -hmm.
13: 1994, and another UFO. This time, in the skies over Mexico City itself. Sometimes the UFOs present themselves in formation, like this sighting in 1994. The question as to the authenticity of the films seems to have been answered by Professor kusada To be a hoax, they would have had to have falsified the film on hundreds of videos taken by the vigilantes. A very expensive conspiracy. Who could possibly gain from it? Here are still photographs taken by Paul Trent, a farmer in Oregon in 1950. These have been verified by military aviation laboratories in the USA. Here is a photo of a UFO taken in Germany and a thermographic analysis. These are two photographs taken in New Mexico, USA in 1992 near the Manzana atomic base. UFO sightings are common over these kind of facilities. And this is a long series of photos taken in 1987 by a Mr. and Mrs. Walton in the Gulf Breeze area of the USA. Some claim that there are hoax, but examination of the photographs by a leading expert has confirmed their authenticity.
10: I was confronted with a problem of, um, could this be real? Uh, It was hard to imagine that Mr. Walters could hoax photos and then have everybody else, have so many other witnesses agree with him. It would have to be a grand conspiracy. Or else, other people were seeing something and he was photographing it. In any case, I uh, studied the photos very carefully. Uh, My conclusion is that all those sightings were real.
13: It's important to remember that the same phenomenon was photographed in other countries at the same time. As you can see from the following examples, there are many kinds of UFOs. Another element in the study of UFOs is the examination of traces that are left on the ground where alleged sightings have taken place. Sometimes a whitish substance falls from the UFO. Its analysis has given some disconcerting results. What have we found so far? There are two important things. The first was that the ground was not burnt as we thought. It was, in fact, crystallized by microwave radiation. The microwave in question would have been 50 million. With
2: the Lucky landslides, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
13: Imagine the power of it. We managed to test the phenomenon in the laboratory. Galileo would have been proud of us. We demonstrated the cause of the crystallization. And nobody can say it isn't true. Because we did it under laboratory conditions. We examined deposits formed on the ground by the UFOs and these gave us some disconcerting results. In
18: 1957,
13: a deposit from a UFO was analysed and it was found to contain magnesium, a magnesium much heavier than anything known on Earth. It didn't have a nucleus and it was really much heavier than our magnesium. It was definitely magnesium from space.
18: The French, in 1967,
13: found a similar deposit. And this was also magnesium, and it was much heavier than terrestrial magnesium. I have a simple conclusion from all of this and other evidence.
18: I'm absolutely al di fuori del
13: pianeta Terra.
18: La mia conclusione è semplicissima. Al di là di
13: pianeta to make this form of magnesium.
18: I'm convinced of this. Oggi siamo sicurissimi che il fenomeno è esogeno al pianeta Terra, cioè viene da fuori. È tecnologico, non è di nostra competenza, non lo sappiamo riprodurre.
13: And what do the authorities say about UFOs? For many years, they've denied or ridiculed these stories, but their attitude has now partially changed. We saw a big object in the sky which we couldn't identify. It had very powerful lights, which directed at the ground. In 1989 and 1990, there were numerous sightings of a UFO in Belgium by more than 2,000 civilians and numerous police patrols. It was a triangular object with three lights at the top and one in the centre. It was flying silently at very low altitude, just above the ground. This photograph of the object, complete with thermographic analysis, is a filmed sequence. Belgian Military Aviation Authorities have officially joined a collaborative study of the case. After ground radar revealed the presence of the object, some jet fighters were scrambled to intercept the UFO, but without success, because the object performed some incredible manoeuvres, demonstrating it was in some way guided. Was it an experimental military aircraft like the stealth bomber. The US government has denied this possibility. The stealth bomber is also noisy, and the question is why would a foreign experimental plane fly at low altitude over a densely populated area? Belgian Air Force General Charles de Bruyne held a press conference on the 18th of December 1989 to confirm that they had intercepted UFOs. His written report states, there were no signs of danger. The mystery of their origin remains, but the phenomena exists. It is real. The UFO sighted over Belgium is very similar to that sighted over Tachino by our Swiss housewife and the UFOs filmed over Pueblo in Mexico. Other official confirmation includes the President of Brazil, President Kubitschek, who in 1958 declared that a Brazilian Navy ship had sighted and photographed a flying saucer. These are the documents. Spain has recently declassified some documents which confirm the sightings of UFOs. In June 1976, on the Canary Islands, hundreds of people saw a white light which emitted rays. It is written by a local military commander. In addition, there are accounts of humanoids being seen during UFO landings. Still in Spain, a highly luminous disc was seen to come out of the sea. This sighting was confirmed at the same time in Italy. In 1978, the three pilots of a Spanish supercarvel flying over Valencia saw three red lights, which seemed to be at first on a collision course and then to dance in front of the aircraft. The caravel was forced to make an emergency landing. And fighters were scrambled to intercept, but they failed to make contact. In 1975, on the Badanes Reales military base, near Navarra, a UFO was seen at low altitude. Until the end of 1990, the Spanish government had always denied the existence of any UFO file. And the same goes for the UK. Before 1990, there had only been the occasional comments, as we list here, Lord Dowding, the air chief in 1954, suggested that 10,000 UFO sightings have been made and recorded. He also asserted that these were of extraterrestrial origin. In 1954, an RAF pilot named Saladin encountered some UFOs. This is Saladin's sketch. Ralph Noyes, defense secretary, is said by 1964 to have seen Air Force film of UFOs. In 1978, an English policeman, Tony Dodd, saw a UFO with a colleague. Then, in 1980, it was the turn of P.C. Alan Godfrey. And yet, as we have seen, there was no official confirmation of the sightings. All were treated as top secret. This secrecy has extended to the highest levels with Chief of Staff Admiral Hill Norton declaring that he was kept in the dark on the existence of a special UFO department. An exceptional case from Woodbridge in Suffolk involved what is believed to be a case of broken-down UFO. Air Force police patrols, who went to the spot, described the object as metallic and resting on three legs, emitting a strong white light. As they got closer to the object, the engines of their cars cut out and the radio contact was lost. This is not science fiction. The episode is confirmed in a report by the deputy commander of the base, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt. In it, you can read that the next day, traces left by the object were found on the ground. According to the reports of the Air Force Patrol, three humanoids were seen to leave the UFO. They were approximately one meter tall, with big heads, and dressed in silver. The commander of the base, General Gordon Williams, is reported to have said that the creatures seemed to communicate by a series of gestures and telepathy. This encounter has never been officially confirmed. France. In February 1974, the then Minister of Defence, Robert Gallet, declared in an interview that for 20 years the French had been studying UFOs. The results of the official studies were published including the analysis of traces left by two UFOs in 1975 and 1981 in the south of France. An extract from the report states, The physical phenomenon exists, its place of origin, method of propulsion and behaviour are all beyond human comprehension. Since this, all information has virtually been embargoed by the French. Italy, since 1978, has listed its sighting of UFOs. These are the sightings listed in the 80s. The Swiss government has often said that it pays little credence to the UFOs. But since 1990, the Federal Military Department has given free access to a map showing civilian UFO sightings. No military sightings are recorded. On this map are two reports of sightings by military radar. The first on August the 2nd at 11pm. This UFO sighting lasted for a whole hour. It wasn't a meteorite as it moved in a zigzag fashion. It wasn't birds because of high speed. And they ruled out aircraft. On the 13th of June 1993... Radar showed a UFO moving not horizontally, but vertically over a military base, with changes of altitude from 5,500 metres to 8,500 in a few minutes. The object was also capable of moving from 8,000 metres to 20,000 metres in a few seconds. The experts have also not commented on this photograph, which shows a UFO spotted by a Swiss Army Mirage. The photograph has been certified as genuine by computer analysis. In the Soviet Union, in 1990, a short while after the sightings in Belgium, General Igor Maltsev, Supreme Chief of the Soviet Air Force, admitted the existence of alien UFOs and extraterrestrial life forms. He said that some MiGs had observed a saucer of 100 to 200 metres in diameter, which was also able to stay motionless in the air, and which performed extraordinary aerial manoeuvres. Ground radar had confirmed this phenomenon. The Soviet defence chief had decided not to attack the UFO. He calculated such an attack would be pure folly. In 1991, KGB documents reported that an atomic base in Kaspusin Yar had sighted a UFO over the base for two hours in 1989. During its flight, the UFO emitted a ray of light which seemed to inspect the installation. In 1984, a UFO was seen in Ukraine, above a missile base, but no intervention was possible. After the UFO left the airspace of the base, the guidance systems for the missiles used on the base were found to be inoperative. All the systems had to be reprogrammed. US atomic bases have experienced similar systems malfunctions after UFO appearances the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 and the official Soviet news agency TASS for the first time reported the landing of a UFO at Voronezh some children and numerous adults were witnesses TASS reported that the Varanesh UFO had landed humanoids and robots. This episode was repeated three times. The witnesses were questioned by Western experts and were thought to be credible. Studies of traces left by the UFO revealed substances not known on Earth. The disk had the form of an egg. It was 15 meters high and 5 to 6 meters long. On the basis of the Earth's disturbance it had to weigh at least 11 tons. Even in the U.S., UFO sightings are classified as top secret. However, the door has been opened a crack by the Law on Freedom of Information brought in in 1970. This was a law supported by President Jimmy Carter, who saw a UFO in 1969 when he was a state governor, as you can see from this document. The law allows access to secret documents, as long as it doesn't compromise national security. From these documents come important revelations. Some army veterans started to tell of their experiences. These veterans faced a barrage of abuse designed to discredit them. One of these was Wendell Stevens. In 1947, he was transferred from the Roswell Basin, New Mexico, where he had studied captured enemy aircraft, to Alaska, in Alaska, his squadron was detailed to reconnoiter the area. It soon became clear to Stevens that his real mission was to photograph
19: UFOs sighted in the region. A crew reported seeing a disc-shaped object sitting on the ice field that rose into the air and flew away as they approached it. Now, for us to launch a B-29 in Alaska, it took a field of equipment bigger than the B-29, heaters, power units, supply uh, lubricating units gasoline units everything to get one b-29 airborne in, in Arctic airspace it would take us several hours to get it ready to go here's an object that's sitting on the ice field with no support equipment that jumps into the air and flies away and leaves nothing behind it now that was in our view was an impossibility because we could, there's no way we could approach anything like that then a, a report came in of seeing one emerge from below the water, sit on the water from, surface of the water for a moment, rise into the air, and then zip off, flying away. Another one, at another time, was reported to have descended into the water and disappeared. None of our aircraft could do any of that.
13: Another important case is that of the then-Lieutenant Graham Bethune during a 1951 flight from England to the U.S. on a C-54 transport. The incident was confirmed by the whole crew.
20: We began to see lights. There was a pattern of lights on the water, right on the water. And the size of this pattern of lights were really disturbing because it looked like many ships or aircraft carriers or what have you tied up and maybe a ring of lights. So we didn't know what was going on. We passed over the guard ship, which is a weather ship, which reports the weather to us, any ships in the area, and this type of thing. So there was no ships in the area. There was no activity in the northern lights or over There was nothing plotted in the area. So it really, you know, we wonder, well, what are we seeing? Maybe they're doing some secret type of recovery or something in the water. The the next thing we saw was like a a little small halo about 25 miles away. That halo came to us like that, that 25 miles that fast. And of course... uh, I disengaged the autopilot because the size of this thing—we couldn't see anything else out of the cockpit except that craft. And, and when I started to push the nose over to go under, uh, it stopped about 15 degrees off the bow, about 200 feet below us, maybe 1,500 feet out in front of us. And at that time, it was above the horizon. At night, you know, it's very difficult to see anything, but we could see—we could see the dome. We could see it was dome-shaped ship. We could see roughly the size of it. Then immediately it pulled away about five miles away on a, at an angle and sat there and flew with us.
13: This is the official report of the episode. In another case, in 1954, Army pilot Mel Noel was part of a squadron asked to film UFOs in the skies over the USA. Their film sequences of UFOs were shown at the base.
12: We were shown in the, somewhere in the area 600 still photographs and a fair quantity of gun camera film that had been
13: exposed just coincidentally
12: with, uh, with the sighting.
13: Soon the squadron sighted five objects without managing to film them. It was five days later we
12: ran into either the same or another five and at that time we we felt we succeeded in uh, getting them on the film and approximately I think it was a week after that we ran into a total of 16 of the things and we were having at that point we were having some relatively severe psychological problems
13: These were pilots in their early 20s, defenseless in the face of the UFOs. While they were observing them, something incredible happened. In their headphones, they heard a voice which said in English that they'd come in peace, but they were worried about what man was doing and that the voice they were hearing was not a hallucination.
12: Their purpose of being here was to uh, dissuade some of the influence they they made refer, reference to nuclear uh development by man and the problems that would be created and had been created from it and uh, it's, uh at, at the age of 21 it uh it placed us in severe quandary of questioning and capability and opposing side ego and and experience but um it, there was no humor. I mean, it was not fun at all.
13: Here we have some official documents, which will now be made public. General Nathan Twining prepared a study on UFOs in 1947 for Chief of the Staff of the Pentagon, George Shulgan. It contains the chilling conclusion that, based on the evidence at the time, that UFOs are real that they're capable of extraordinary flight with amazing changes of direction, which made the writers think they must be guided by some alien intelligence. They were even seen to fly in formation, and that their origin and technology were unknown. This 1947 document is now in the public domain. One of the great unsolved mysteries is the question of alien remains, ...from one of these objects. From the many statements, it would seem that in 1947 near Roswell, New Mexico... ...one or more saucers or disks had crashed. Perhaps because of local experiments with electromagnetic radiation. Mac Brazel, a farmer, harvests some strange materials... ...and took them to the airbase at Roswell. They included unknown materials with writing on them... ...similar to hieroglyphics... The base commander examined them, and in a press release, declared them to be the remains of a recovered UFO. A few hours later, General Ramey, under orders from the Pentagon, denied the fine and said the debris was the remains of a weather balloon. Roswell is a much-discussed incident. The official documents in 1947 have the handwritten notes of FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover. On them, it says... The FBI must have access to the recovered UFO. Another thorny question has been, were alien corpses recovered from the crashed spacecraft? An internal memo from an FBI operative to his chief, J. Edgar Hoover, indicates that they were in possession of the debris of three flying saucers, each one with the remains of a small humanoid dressed in a silver suit. This document was released in 1983 and its contents confirmed by Professor Robert Saarbacher. He was directly involved in the UFO research project in the 40s. Saarbacher writes, The UFO was constructed of a light and resistant material. The humanoids had internal organs similar to insects. A hoax? Many analysts think not. But why is it all kept so secret? Was it to make sure that there was no public panic, with the U.S. government afraid to admit that they were powerless in the face of a UFO menace? Perhaps they wanted to gain technological advantage from recovered materials. Whatever the reasons, in 1947, a massive cover-up operation began. A number of supposed research projects were set up to calm public opinion and create confusion about the phenomenon by means of disinformation. They were codenamed Grudge, Sign and Blue Book. The real research took place under the greatest secrecy within the project Majestic 12, a project run by Professor vandavar Bush, now dramatised in the UFO series Dark Skies. This document from Majestic 12 was donated anonymously to a researcher in 1984. It is a memo from President Eisenhower it states that on the 7th of July, 1947, a UFO came to Roswell with a humanoid on board, but it had been reported to the press that it was merely a weather balloon. Many say that the Eisenhower is a fake. This document from 1950 would seem to question that view. The Canadian engineer, Wilbert Smith, indicates to his government that the subject of UFOs is more secret than the atomic bomb. A group led by Professor Bush have been asked to carry out a research project called Majestic 12. Since that time, many incidents have occurred, including a possible alien landing at Fort Dix, which included alien casualties. And in 1993, an alien craft may have disabled the nuclear arsenal at Manzano in the former Soviet Union. With these spectacular video pictures of a UFO, we conclude this part of UFOs, the complete truth. These are genuine pictures. UFOs exist, but many questions remain as to their origin, purpose, and the intelligence that guides them. Questions that we will deal with in the later three parts of our investigation. Cosmic Watergate ancient astronauts and ultra secrets watch them and make up your own mind